Back in the 60s, yeah, let's go back to the 60s. It's actually before my time. Back to the 60s, there was a TV show that ran. It was called The Addams Family. Anybody remember The Addams Family? The reason why I remember the TV show is because I saw the reruns of the show in the 70s. I didn't see it when it first ran in the 60s, but I did see the reruns in the 70s, the Adams family. The show was about this family that lived in this haunted mansion type house, and the characters were all into kind of dark, mystical things. They supposedly had special powers, but were basically just weird, okay? (laughs) They were a weird family. I think one of the members of the family was like a hand. Remember that? Yeah, what was it called? It? Thing? Yeah, not it. That was a different show. Thing. Yeah, there was a hand, and its name was Thing. Okay, so it was weird. It was, they were a weird family. And this weirdness basically gave the show this humoristic edge to it. Now, there was another show that ran at the same time as The Addams Family, and it was called The Munsters. How many remember The Munsters? Now, between the Adams family and the Munsters, I was more of a Munsters kind of a guy, right? You know, I, I, you know, Herman Munster was actually kind of a likable guy. You know, as far as a monster, as far as monsters go, he was kind of a likable guy. But back to the Adams family, there was this fascination with the dark, with the macabre, if you will, in even death. The wife and the mom of the show, was her name was Morticia. <laughs> this was her name. They, ran, they ended up doing, uh, a, I think, subsequent um, uh, cartoon version of it and actually a couple of feature-length films on the Adams family. In the end, they were just weird. It was a weird, strange family. Now, there's another family, a real family, that's not as weird, although that's arguable, (laughs) as to the TV Adams Family, but also it had an issue, it has an issue with death. Yes, it's Adams Family. Not the Adams Family, but Adams Family. Yes, and you're a part of this family. You're a part of Adams Family. The family of man, the family of mankind. And there is an issue with death in this family of Adam. The the problem is this, every person dies. And this is seen in our text tonight as we'll look at Genesis chapter five, we're gonna take a look at the genealogy from Adam to Noah. Can everybody say yay, the genealogy? Yeah, okay, wow, you guys are are obedient. We're gonna take a look at this chapter on the genealogy from Adam to Noah, and what we're going to see is that All these guys die. So there's this problem with Adam's family and it's the problem that everybody dies in Adam's family. Tonight we're gonna look specifically at this and as we look at the genealogy of Noah from Adam to Noah, it's 10 generations, 10 generations that we're gonna look at here in Genesis 5 and as we look at it tonight, we're gonna see one of the things that that comes through loud and clear and that's that Adam's family does have an issue with death. But we're also going to see that God has a plan to do something about the issue of death within Adam's family. 
The answer is going from Adam's family, the answer to the death problem in Adam's family is going from Adam's family into God's family. Being a person that's part of Adam's family, but becoming a part of God's family. So let's take a look at Genesis 5 and see how all of this info is strategically placed into the genealogy of Adam to Noah. Members of Adam's family all die. Let's pick it up, verse 1 of Genesis 5. It says this. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. And he had sons and daughters. And so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. And after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years. And he had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. And after he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. And after he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Let's stop right there. That's a lot of begots and, and he dieds. <clears throat> this is the summary of man, and it's the genealogy of Adam through to Noah, 10 generations. And here in the summary, we can dig out the problem, the problem of Adam's family. First, God created man, and he made him in his likeness. This is verse 1 of Genesis 5.1. It says that God made man, uh, that he, he created man, and he made him in his likeness, in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. And so man was made in the likeness of God. They were created male and female. Remember, we talked about this earlier in the study, two genders, not three or four or five or six or however many there may seem to be today, according to Google and Facebook and all the rest of it, two genders, male and female. And we talked about it last week as we looked at Jesus' genealogy. Adam, he was made, the first man, he was made in the likeness of God. 
He was made in the image as the image of God. And as we looked at Jesus' genealogy, and we saw it there in Luke chapter 3, and I want to draw your attention back to just the closing phrase there in verse 38. You can put it up on the screen there. Adam, the son of God. And so you had all these men um, tracing back uh, through uh, Jesus' earthly parents all the way back to Adam. And the concluding phrase is this in Luke 3.38, Adam, the son of God. And that's because Adam was a son of God. According to scripture, Adam was a direct creation of God. He was created by the Lord. God fashioned him and formed him and all that stuff. And so it begs the question, what is a son of God? What is a son of God? This is important to understand, and it will also give you some important background for next week as Dr. Heiser comes and talks to us about what some of these sons of God from the other realm, from the heavenly realm, what they did and the mischief that they got into. I won't steal any of his thunder, but that's next week. But it begs the question, what is the son, what is a son of God? Specifically, a son of God is a direct creation of God. The angels of heaven are called Sons of God in the scripture. It says it this way in the Hebrew, B'nai Ha Elohim, sons of God. And these are all direct creations of God. And Adam was a son of God. Why? Because he was a direct creation of God in that sense. Now look down at verse three. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam had a son and begotten him in his likeness and in his image. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they received the just punishment that they had been warned about. Remember, God had told them, you can eat of any tree that's, that's, the whole garden is yours. The whole garden of Eden, it's all yours. Here's the one commandment, though. You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Because if in the day that you eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And when they ate of it and they disobeyed the Lord, they received the just punishment that they had been warned about. They were appointed mortality. They were no longer going to live forever. There was death. There was a death sentence in that sense. It actually goes further than that because they actually became spiritually dead. And then they were on a kind of a time clock at that point. Physically, they were headed towards their physical death as well. We learn this from scripture. The wages of sin is death. They were appointed mortality. Now, Adam and Eve, they were sons of God. And every subsequent person born after the fall is a son of Adam. We're not born into the world sons and daughters of God. We're born sons of Adam. And I talked about this last week. And remember, I talked to you about C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, in his fiction work, wrote a lot of uh, great uh, nonfiction. But in his fiction uh, series, The Chronicles of Narnia, he was one of these guys that brought out the truth of that man is, the, 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 the children, remember the four kids, there were two 
boys and two girls. The boys were called sons of Adam and the girls were called daughters of Eve. And so C.S. Lewis actually brings this truth out, brings it to bear, even in the Chronicles of Narnia, that we're sons of Adam. That Adam and Eve were sons of God, but we're sons of Adam. And what we have here in Genesis 5 is a list of the sons of Adam in his likeness and appointed to mortality and spiritual death. Now remember, we just read verse 3. Remember, Seth was the replacement. At the end of uh, chapter 4, we talked about Seth being born and how Seth was then, he was appointed as the replacement uh, for Abel. Remember, Cain killed his brother Abel and then uh, Adam and Eve uh, had another son and his name was Seth. And Seth, the name Seth actually means appointed and he he is appointed as the replacement for Abel. And then verses four and five, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. And so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And as we read through all those verses that we did, I think all the way to 17 or 18, after everyone in the genealogy, you see these words that kind of drives home the point of the mortality of man, this sons of Adam. It was these words that we read over and over and over again, and he died. And so-and-so lived X number of years, and he died. And he had sons and daughters, and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Now, let's move on to verse 18. Pick it up, verse 18. It says this. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we come to this particular guy. He's the seventh in the list, and his name is Enoch. And we want to take a couple minutes and just talk a little bit about Enoch, because he's actually one of the most interesting men in the entire Bible. 
He's one of the most interesting guys. We see him here in Genesis 5, and he is actually directly quoted in the New Testament in the book of Jude, which is the second to last book in the New Testament. You have Jude, and then you have Revelation, and then it's over, right? Uh, and so he's quoted, uh, one of his prophecies is quoted in the book of Jude. And so Enoch was a prophet. Verse 21 here tells us that Enoch reached the age of 65 and he had a son. And now it was at that time that he had the son that the Lord began using Enoch. He was, he was a teacher. In fact, he's credited with, there's things, if you do a lot of research on him, he's credited with a lot of teaching, writing, and all kinds of stuff. And of course, he was a prophet. He began being used by the Lord. He began walking with the Lord. Enoch began walking with the Lord in a very close relationship. And, and we see this idea of having a walk with the Lord or walking with the Lord. It's not like he just took a quick walk one afternoon, hey, walk with the Lord. No, it's this idea of the life that we have with God all the way through our entire lives. It's, it's, it's the walk with the Lord. In the New Testament, it's also compared to a run, that we run a race that is set before us. But here we see that it's a walk and Enoch walked with the Lord and it's this close relationship. And if you're gonna walk with somebody, you have to have, you have to kind of agree to the walk, right? You have to agree to the pace. You have to kind of keep up with the Lord. It's like, come on, come on, son. Come on, girl. We're going to take a walk and we're going to keep moving here. Keep up uh, with me. And there's this agreement that we ascend to, to walk with the Lord in our lives. And it's a beautiful thing. If you choose to walk with the Lord in your life, it's a beautiful, beautiful life. Because even no matter what happens in this life, as bad as it gets, this is, this is as bad as it gets for the Christian, amen? This is as bad as it gets, folks. We're headed on for glory and to be with the Lord forever and ever and ever, amen? So Enoch walked with the Lord. He walked so closely with the Lord that the text here in Genesis 5 tells us that the Lord took him. In other words, he did not die. Now, I told you that, you know, we read through all those, all those guys and we came to the closing uh, phrase there, and he died, and we kept reading it, and this guy died, and this guy died, and this guy died, and this guy died. Then you come down to Enoch, and this guy doesn't die. This guy keeps walking with the Lord. He walks with him so close. He has such this awesome relationship with God that he doesn't die. Literally, the Lord takes him home to be with him. And, and it's an awesome, awesome thing. Many have suggested that Enoch, in that sense, is a type of the church uh, and a type of the Christian, the Christian who walks with the Lord and is taken home to be with God. Some have even gone so far as to say that, it's, that Enoch actually becomes not, not only a type of the church, but a type of the rapture in that sense. And so, well, and here's what happens with people, you know, when you, if you want to make that case, okay? There's a law, and I've talked about this before. There's a law in the book of Deuteronomy, and this law, it's, it's given in Deuteronomy 19. It's called the Law of Witnesses, and it's there specifically in Deuteronomy 19 to give everybody, to give the nation a kind of a baseline for administering capital punishment. And so, this is how it reads. From the mouth of two or three witnesses, 
this thing will be established or verified. And so if someone accused someone of a, a, a capital crime, there would literally have to be at least two or three witnesses for the capital punishment to be administered from the mouth of two or three witnesses. It shall be established in that sense. Jesus actually utilizes the law of witnesses in uh, John chapter eight to actually make the case for his own identity. He calls himself as a witness. He calls the, the father who testified at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so you add all these witnesses and he makes the case using, utilizing the law of witnesses to make the case for his, own, for his own identity as the son of God. So you have the law of two or three witnesses. So you have Enoch taken out, right? So you have that here in Genesis five. There's another guy in the Old Testament that uh, apparently is kind of taken and doesn't die, right? Elijah, um, and, and he's kind of taken up in, in this kind of this fiery vehicle of some kind, a chariot. And, and so Elijah, in that sense, doesn't die. And so there you would have two Old Testament witnesses to people literally being taken up to be with the Lord, two witnesses verifying the possibility of being taken up out of the earth. And this, of course, again, according to the, the law of witnesses, the voice of two or three verifies something to be true. Also for this reason, because you have Enoch and Elijah, the ones that are taken, many have suggested that it is Enoch and Elijah that come back at the end in Revelation 11, where you see the two witnesses that come and they, they begin to testify of the gospel of Christ in the, in the streets of Jerusalem. And then they are murdered in the streets of Jerusalem, their bodies laying on the streets of Jerusalem, and therefore um, they are killed. And then that's how kind of, there's some people that kind of work it out in their minds of like, okay, well, that's where the Bible says, you know, it's appointed unto men once to die and then judgment. And so he's gonna bring Elijah and Enoch back and have them killed in the streets of Jerusalem and all the rest of it. So I, I, I don't know what you wanna do all, with all that. It's a little bit of speculation. No one knows who the two witnesses will be, the two witnesses of Revelation. Others have suggested Elijah and Moses, and that goes to the types of activity that you see with these witnesses in Revelation. Back to Enoch. Enoch began to prophesy, he prophesied. And one of the things that the Lord showed Enoch was the second coming of Christ. Here he is, the seventh from Adam, and Enoch, this prophet at the beginning of the family of Adam, God gives him a vision of the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. He showed him all the way to the end. There is some written about Enoch in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verse five, you'll see it on the screen. It says this, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God, that he believed God, that he pleased God. Well, how did he please God? That, I, I, don't go to the next phrase. Don't go, don't go to the next slide yet. Hold on. I want to know, if this guy pleased God, here in 2017, it'd be a real good idea to know what it was that he did that pleased God so that we could all do the same thing. Amen? Because I want to please God. Do you want to please God? Well, the next verse is the answer, and it's one that you're going to be very familiar with. But without faith, 
It's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's faith in God, it's trust and absolute loyalty to the Lord that, that, that pleases the Lord. He looks down and he says, man, that's one of mine. That's, that's one that's become a part of my family. That's one that, that pleases me. And so if you wanna know how to please God, it's believing upon him, it's trusting him, it's loyalty to the one true and living God. And so again, Enoch was a prophet. He prophesied one of his prophecies, the one that I told you about that spoke of the second coming of Christ is, in, is found in Jude verses 14 and 15. You'll see it on the screen. It says this, now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also saying, and here's the quote from Enoch, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. A lot of ungodliness going on, and God coming back to deal with once and for all the ungodliness that is on the earth. So Enoch here prophesied about the second coming. Now, Enoch received another prophecy about a coming judgment, not the judgment that's coming at the end, at the second coming of Christ, but he received a prophecy that a judgment was coming upon the earth, and the prophecy of this judgment was tied to the life of his son. Actually, more specifically, the prophecy of this judgment was tied to the death of his son. You say, what do you mean? Enoch in a prophecy, gave his son a prophetic name. He named his son Methuselah. And you'll see it on the screen. This was Enoch's son. He had a son. He received a prophecy from the Lord when his son was born, and he named his son a prophetic name, Methuselah. It comes from two root words in the Hebrew, meth or muth, meaning death, and selah or shalak, comes from the root meaning bringing or bringing forth or emanating at that time. And so Methuselah's name was actually a prophecy about the coming judgment of God upon the earth. What is the prophecy? Methuselah actually means, it equals, his death shall bring. His death shall bring. Methuselah, his death shall shall bring. The death of Methuselah would bring or commence the judgment of God on the earth, specifically the flood, the flood that was coming upon the earth. A leading Hebrew scholar of the 1700s, Dr. John Gill, said this, and that Enoch, Enoch had a son whose name was Methuselah, is affirmed by Oipolomus, a heathen writer, and Enoch being a prophet, gave him this name under a spirit of prophecy foretelling by it when the flood should be. When would the flood be? His death shall bring. So Methuselah's life was actually a prophecy about his death and that his death would bring the coming judgment of God, namely the flood upon the earth. Can you imagine growing up in the neighborhood? Methuselah getting a cold? You know, oh dear, what's going on? No, no, make sure he's all right. Let's get some penicillin in here. Let's get some, you know, antibiotics going. Call the doctor. His death shall bring. His death shall bring 
the judgment of God, the flood. You say, wow, the judgment of God? That's, whenever, you want to, whenever you talk about the judgment of God, it, it gets real kind of quiet. It gets kind of harsh and all this. But I want to also tell you that not only was his name a prophecy about the judgment of God coming upon the earth, the length of his life became a picture of the love and the mercy of God. Yes. What's that? Methuselah lived for 969 years. In the Bible, this is a bit of Bible trivia. If you're ever on Jeopardy, okay, and the category is old guys in the Bible, right? And, 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 and what's his name? Alex Trebek, right? Alex Trebek says he was the oldest guy that ever lived. <laughs> Who is Methuselah? Yes, you're correct, right? You have, to, you have to answer the question in the form of the question. The answer is the form of a question, right? If you, that's for Jeopardy. That's what, if, if you ever end up on Jeopardy. And there was a time I wanted to go on Jeopardy, but I, you know, not anymore. But anyways, um, so Methuselah was the guy who lived the longest time of anybody who ever lived. The text tells us here in Genesis 5 that he lived 969 years. So here's a guy whose name means his death shall bring the judgment of God. It's a prophecy given to Enoch about his son that upon the death of his son, the, 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 the judgment of God is going to come upon the earth, but God has this guy be the longest living guy that ever has lived on the face of the earth. And what does that tell you about God? It tells you that God is long-suffering, amen? That he's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should come to him and trust him and to walk with him, amen? amen. He's long-suffering. The Lord set a time on his judgment, and that turns out to be the man who lived the longest of any other person in history. So God is long-suffering. Peter tells us about this long-suffering of God in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. You'll see it on the screen, talking about Jesus. He went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. What? the divine long-suffering that waited when? During the days of Noah. So there was this divine long-suffering, there was this patience. What was the patience? It was the life of Methuselah. 969 years. And then Peter again talks about the long-suffering of the Lord towards us today. 2 Peter 3, 9, you'll see that on the screen this, this verse is about Peter's actually addressing the, the issue where people say, where's the promise of the, of the coming of the Lord, the second coming? And, and, and this is something that's going to come up today. Well, where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming back. The Lord's not coming back. That's all a bunch of hogwash. No, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So, so God is not slack concerning his promise. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's patiently waiting for every single person, whosoever will come, whosoever will call upon his name to be saved. Why? Because he, he, he loves you so much. The Lord is patient. 
even today, giving ample time and opportunity for each person to make that decision, to accept the sacrifice that Jesus made, and to make him the Lord of their lives. Now, the rest of, of chapter five, of Genesis chapter five, takes Adam's genealogy all the way out to Noah and his three sons. And of course, Noah is one of the, the most well-known men of the Bible, right? Even by people who don't know anything else about the Bible, they've heard of Noah. And he was commanded to build, the, build an ark before the flood. Now, I want to back up here just for a second, and I want to ask a question. Here we have this prophecy in the name Methuselah. His death shall bring. His death shall bring the judgment of God of the flood upon the earth. And it begs the question if Methuselah, Methuselah's name had such meaning that just looking at it, reading it in the text, you might not pick up on it. And we, in, in the, our English translations, and yes, this is a translation that you're reading. To use another word, it's a targum. I talked about the targums last week. People said, oh, I don't got no targum. No, you have a targum sitting in your lap right now. It's an English targum, okay? Because of the English targum, we have some things are kind of hidden from us because they're not as apparent as they would be in the original language. And that's why it's important to go back and do the study and dig out some of this going back to the original language. In the Old Testament, Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic and in the New Testament, Greek. So some have suggested that there, there are more hidden messages such as this one that we see with Methuselah in the Bible. Now I think, let me be clear here, I think for most people they need to concentrate on the plain straightforward message of the Bible. They need to spend enough time in that plain straightforward message before they go digging around and trying to uncover the hidden messages that may or may not be there. With that being said, to deny that there are not, or to deny and say there are not any hidden messages would be to deny the, the, the facts that surround the scriptures. If Methuselah's name had such a specific meaning about the timing of the flood, what about the other names in this list? What do their names mean? Everything in the word, if you want to know what's going on with the Bible, there's a message about it. This book it has 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, written by 40 authors on three continents in three different languages over the course of about 1,500 years. But there's a message in here. It's basically a picture. It's a portrait of a person. It's a picture, a portrait of Jesus. This book is about Jesus from cover to cover. Everything in the Word is about Jesus. In fact, we reference that where it said, believing the word. Remember when Jesus said, how will you believe me? If you, you didn't believe the words of Moses, how are you going to believe me? If you believed Moses, then you would believe me. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. A quick lesson in hermeneutics is this. 
Look for Jesus when you read the Bible. Look for Jesus. This is a little corny, but someone said hermeneutics is really hermeneutics because <laughs> it's about him. It's about Jesus. So you look for Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to the, the Pharisees. He said, you, you search the scriptures, for in them you claim, to, you claim to find eternal life. But these, speaking of the scriptures, these are they that testify of me. What's that? The scriptures are about me, Jesus is saying. Okay, so let's, let's do this. And, we're, and we're, we're almost done, okay? All right, so let's go back to Adam. Adam, yeah, go ahead and put that first slide up there. Yeah, the first one, Adam. No? Adam equals man. That one, there we go. Adam is a, is a word that means man. Pretty simple, right? So we're a, part of, we're a part of Adam's family. We're a part of mankind. Seth, we learned this from chapter four. Seth actually means appointed. Remember, Seth was appointed as the replacement for, for Abel, who Cain had killed. Enosh equals mortal. His, it's actually... Um, it's actually uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the meaning of that, that name. Canaan equals sorrow. Mahalalel, okay, so you had appointed, you had mortal, and you had sorrow, and then you have this guy. Mahalalel. And w whenever you see E-L, right away you know that that's God, right? E-L. So Mahalalel, blessed or praise God the blessed God. His son was named Jared. Jared actually would be Yerod. Jared means shall come down. It means to come down. Enoch actually means teaching or commencing or beginning, teaching. Methuselah, his son, we already talked about this, his death shall bring. Methuselah, his death shall bring. And then Lamech, equals despairing, we actually have this. See, we have this as a transliteration. What we have in our English translation is a transliteration of the name. This one actually connects with something, a root of our own language, Lamech, despairing, lament. To lament is to, to, to despair, right? And then Noah equals comfort or rest. So, here in the genealogy of Noah, if we were to, to write it out as a sentence, the meanings of the names of the genealogy of, from Adam to Noah, this is actually how it would read if we read it out. The genealogy of Adam. Man appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. And so here in the genealogy, you say, oh, I don't want to study no genealogies. This is pretty cool stuff. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ tucked away 
in the genealogy of Adam from Adam to Noah, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful example of the truth of the gospel. It's a powerful example of the incredible architecture of the Bible and it's a testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question comes full circle for us tonight. How do you go from Adam's family to God's family? How do you go from Adam's family to God's family? Remember what we said about a son of God? A son of God is a direct creation of God. A son of Adam is a descendant of Adam. So to be in God's family, you've got to be his son. In order to be his son, you've got to become a direct creation of God. And so Paul told the Corinthians what they were, the, Cor the Corinthian Christians. The Corinthian Christians in the church at Corinth that Paul wrote to in 2 Corinthians, he told them who they were. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, you'll be very familiar with the verse. He said this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so here's what has happened to the person who has accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, who's accepted salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Here's what's happened. You've gone from Adam's family to God's family. You've gone from the old person that was dead in your sins, and you've gone to becoming alive and reborn, reborn from above by the power of God, born into the family of God. Amen. Remember, Nicodemus asked, how, how can I be born again? Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. But how can I go back into my mother's womb? No, I'm not talking about being born again, going back into your mother's womb. I'm talking about being born again, born from above. Not, and, and this is the way that John put it in his gospel, that to as many as received him, he gave them the power, the right to become children of God, not people who were born according to the will of man, but by the will of God, born of the Father from above, becoming a new creation, becoming a direct creation of God, amen, there, thereby becoming a son and daughter of God, and Christian, that's what you are, you're a son, you're a son of God. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. If you have received Christ Jesus and his work for you on the cross, you have become born from above. If you're born from above, you have passed from Adam's family into the family of God.